The following audio is the recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. You can visit our website at strosecc.org. Good morning. Good morning. I have been looking forward to saying these words. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of John, chapter 17. If you were the uh, threes and fours class, thank you for worshiping with us. You were dismissed to your classes in the back. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, slip up your hand. We've got uh, church members with those in the back. They'd be glad to bring you one. I love you guys, <laughs> and I love preaching the Word to you. Uh, if you are new to St. Rose Community Church, or if you have been visiting over the last three months, uh, I, I am so excited to get to know you. Um, I am uh, one of the pastors here at the church, the normal preaching pastor here, uh, lead pastor here, and I have been on sabbatical for three months, uh, uh, sabbatical from my pastoral responsibilities and preaching responsibilities because our church has been so gracious uh, to me to give me that period of rest with my family after seven years of service here, and it was wonderful. It was a wonderful thing to rest with family, to spend time. I've, the Lord taught me a lot uh, over those three months of, of not uh, uh, having the regular responsibility of preaching the word and focusing on my family, but if I stood up here and told you all that I learned from sabbatical and talked about the last three months, uh, I would not be doing uh, what I'm called to do primarily in this church, which is to open up God's word and preach it and enjoy it with you. So we're in John 17. Drew began uh, our series in John 17 a couple weeks ago. Uh, and and I guess I will just pause and just say this. Uh, let me pause and say this, that my time of rest, my sabbatical, would not have been possible if it wasn't for the fruitful, faithful labor of Drew O'Neill at this church. Um, he has led... He has led so well along with the other elders and along with all of the men who filled this pulpit and preached the word of God. So we began our study of John chapter 17, a 2,000-year-old record of God the Son's prayer to God the Father on our behalf before he took his steps to the cross for us. And so when we read John 17 together, as a church family, we, we're walking on holy ground. Uh, there's a, a depth and a breadth to this moment in history that our finite minds cannot quite appreciate to the degree that we should. Reading this text is, is seeing into something that has been happening for eternity and will happen into eternity that is beyond us. And it's a wonderful text to think about as we try to prepare our hearts to celebrate Christmas, right? Christ's intention for the miracle of Christmas, his coming to earth as human, is found in these words. If not only is Christ's intention for Christmas found in John 17, uh, Christ's intention for our church and for you as an individual is found in these words. If you've ever found yourself asking the question, what is God's will for my life? Or what is God's will for this church? A really great place to start would be God talking to God about what God desires for 
God's people. This moment, we find the will of God for you. This should be a text we consult as God the Son speaks to God the Father about what he desires. So John chapter 17, verse 20, is where we will begin, and we will read all the way down to verse 24. The text says this, I do not ask for these only, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Father, we want to hear from you this morning primarily. God, I pray that you would stir in us an eagerness and a longing and a desire to know you, for this is eternal life. This is what life abundant means. It means to know you and to be known by you, Father. And so we just ask uh, that you would work the miracle that Christ prayed for, that he prayed for 2,000 years ago. We pray that you would answer that prayer again in this moment in our hearts and lives, that there would be a, a nearness to God and a nearness to each other that would cause the world to believe. So God, please speak now through your word, we pray all these things by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, before he literally, historically, really took steps to a cross to die and then rise again, Jesus of Nazareth kneeled in prayer for you. In this moment in his prayer, Jesus transitions. He clarifies. Uh, until this point, you could have made the argument, oh, he's just praying for his immediate disciples back then, you know, the 12 that he's walking with, or perhaps the 120, or, or perhaps just the, the, the 5,000 that would follow him and hear him. And 
In this moment, Jesus wants to clarify, I'm not just praying for these disciples that are seeing me and hearing me in this moment, but he clarifies that what he's about to do with his death and resurrection was not simply to benefit these immediate disciples, but rather his words, his ministry, his work on the cross was for that generation, and it was for this generation. That what he was doing was beginning something that would then continue in this prayer he anticipates your salvation he anticipates believers that will gather together in saint rose community church and not only does he anticipate believers he anticipates the means by which they would come to believe how was it that What he accomplished then and there, thousands of miles away and thousands of years removed, how was it that that salvation would get to this moment in this room? Well, see, Jesus highlights the hearing and the believing of his message through people who proclaimed his message. Look at verse 20 again. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me. Well, how are they going to believe in me? Through their word, through the people who are going to speak of me to the next generation and the next generation. Jesus, and what he anticipates here is a continuous generation by generation ministry preaching of the most important message in the history of the world. If you're here this morning and you're not sure that you've ever really understood this message, you're not sure of your standing before God, you're in the right place. Because this is what Jesus anticipates happening throughout the world, throughout all of history. That you, in this moment, have the opportunity to receive forgiveness, eternal life, everlasting relationship with God, and the means by which you can be saved forever. And brought into eternal bliss and happiness with the Lord is by hearing the sentences I'm saying and believing them. Right now, these sentences that are coming from my mouth and going into this room, they have an effect on every person in the room, either positively or negatively. That's why God says that his word never returns void. It always does something. These sentences that cause you to believe in this reality that Jesus was God on earth, that he was and is and will forever be God with us, that he lived a perfect human life and died a substitutionary death and rose again from the dead to pay the penalty for sinners like you and me. And then, and then he, he offers eternal life if you would just believe him to be Lord. You could hear those words and believe them for the first time, and your eternity is different. Or you could hear those words and reject it yet again and harden yourselves a little more to the best conceivable news in the world, that there's a God who loves you. If you're a Christian in this room, this prayer certainly includes you. Because at some point in your life, somebody told you the gospel. At some point in your life, you heard the word they were preaching and you believed. 
if nothing else this morning, I hope that you walk away out of this room thankful that somebody somewhere was obedient to preach the word. And that you heard and your heart was stirred to believe. Now suppose that we could sit here for 30 minutes and I could ask for you to yell out the name of the person that shared the word with you when you first believed. Or perhaps the name of the church that you were in when you met God. Now I suppose that we could end the sermon right there and just be thankful and go home. Be thankful for our salvation and go on to live our lives, to not go to hell and suffer the punishment for our sins and go to heaven. But that's not where the prayer ends, is it? In fact, I'm afraid that that's where much preaching ends. A lot of preaching ends with the sharing of the good news. In fact, that little presentation of the gospel normally is at the end of a sermon, right? Because that's what we're getting to, to seal the deal, to try to see more people saved. And that's an absolutely wonderful thing. But, it's, but I want you to notice that it's not where Jesus' prayer ends. In fact, it's really just the beginning of his prayer for you. Jesus' high priestly prayer is not a prayer that as many people as possible will believe, but rather Jesus' prayer takes a step further for you. The purpose of salvation goes deeper. The scope is wider. The end is more glorious than walking an aisle and picking up some assurance that you will not go to hell. Christian, you're not called to just believe in the preached word so you can get a ticket to go to the right place in the end. Jesus prays for more for you and more from you. The thing that really sticks out in John 17 as we read this is the so that phrases. So that is a purpose clause that takes you beyond the what and into the deeper why. The so that clauses are are the things that take you like in this season, right? Beyond the lights and the songs and the happy holidays, holidays, but into the reason for the season. Or in this case, the purpose for which Christ now prays. So I want you to do this. We're going to look at the text again, and I just want you to notice how Jesus adds layers of purpose and reason for what he's praying. So look at verse 20 again. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that... They may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory you've given me, I've given to them, that may they be one even as we're one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. There are prayer requests here, three of them, that we're going to look at. Number one. What's Jesus praying for? What's the purpose here for praying for you believers? What's he want for you? Number one, Jesus prays for our unity with God. John 17, 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now, Jesus prays for the unity of Christians, which we'll talk about in a second. And that's really the theme of it, is the unity of Christians. But under that unity among Christians is the the causing of that unity. And it's the unity we actually have with God himself. 
Earlier, Jesus describes in his prayer what the true essence of eternal life is. What is eternal life? What is it that we've been promised as Christians? Is it just an eternity where the World Cup is on all the time? Right? Some of y'all don't care about that at all. But that would be awesome. Right? Is it, is it an eternal game of golf? Is it, is it an eternal moment by the beach? Or, or is eternal life something far more profound. In John 17, verse 3, you guys studied a few weeks ago that this is what it is. Verse 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life will forever be a joyful, personal knowledge of God. A relationship that Jesus is not new to. And a relationship that Jesus has been enjoying from eternity past. We worship a relational God, that in his very being, we have God Father, Son, and Spirit. There's no other living being exactly like God. He is totally unique, always existing as eternal love shared with himself, joy shared in and with himself, relationship shared in and with himself. That's what it means when we say as Christians that we believe that God is Trinity. He's unlike any other created being because all other created beings, they need relationship with other created beings in order to be fulfilled. Whereas God was never created and God never needed anyone else. He was always existing as love in love with Father, Son, and Spirit. If that explodes your brain a little bit, that's okay. Because it has been exploding people's brains a little bit for thousands of years. It is a glorious, unhindered union that Jesus even looks forward to returning to in fullness. Look at John chapter 17, verse 5. Father, Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. He comes back to that same idea now here in verse 24 where, there, where he says, now get this, at the beginning he's just talking about himself. I, I want to be with you, Father. But look in verse 4. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me, because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is praying that you would know God the way he's known God <laughs> from eternity past. Do you realize this is what the gospel message is? To be a Christian, and I put this on the screen so you could try to get this conceptually, to be a Christian means not only that Jesus died on a cross which you deserved, it means that Jesus now invites you into a relationship with God that only he deserves. It's not just believe in Jesus so that you won't be punished. It's believe in Jesus and accept the invitation to be with God. The gospel is an invitation to be loved for eternity future as Jesus has been loved from eternity past. You're invited into the family of God the Father. And you're invited to be sons and daughters. This relational unity with God 
according to the scriptures, it starts now. It's something that we get to experience in part now, but it progresses until one day it's perfected in his presence. There's a sense in which our oneness with God, yes, it's set before the foundation of the world. Yes, it goes on into eternity future. God the Father has already given us to God the Son, but there's another sense in which our oneness with God is a process waiting to be completed. That one day, verse 24 says, there will be a real us with him seeing his glory. One day what we know now in part, we will know in full. This is eternal life that we know God. But as for the meantime, Jesus prays that there will be a unity with God even now. Last week, uh, Randy preached and he referenced, uh, he preached on verse 17 where Jesus prays just before this, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. That word sanctify means to set apart for the purposes of God. Jesus prays that his disciples would be increasingly set apart for the relational unity with God and the way that they would grow in that would be the truth of the word of God. So what is it that we're doing here this morning? Why am I excited to preach? Is it just because I like to talk in front of people? No. This moment is a moment designed by God where you hear God's word. You are sanctified. That is, you are set apart a little bit more for the purposes of God. And you draw a little nearer to the God whom one day you will be with for all of eternity. This is an incredible moment where God works to be uniquely glorified in this season. One day, there'll be no need for preaching like this. Right? One day, I'm going to be on a long sabbatical. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Jesus prayed for our unity with God. But that unity, it's not all that Jesus prays for. That's sort of the undercurrent, right? That's sort of the foundation for the next sort of step that he prays for that unity with God has an overflow and actually this is what he's primarily praying for here there's a there's an effect of that unity with God that Jesus anticipates happening like heat of the sun expresses itself in light that goes out and shines on the world Jesus prays for a unity with God that manifests itself visibly like you can see it happening in the world why do you see it happening in the world well this is prayer request number two Jesus prays for the unity of the church. Jesus prays for the unity of the church. Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. I think that in modern American evangelicalism, if I had to pinpoint the thing that we have missed the most over the last hundred years or so, it would be what Jesus is praying for here. Do you realize how big a deal in the plan of God that deep, meaningful, tested, mutually forgiving relationships in the local church are you realize how big a deal this common unity 
of faith is. This St. Rose Common Unity Church is. Jesus says, the glory the Father gives to him, he gives to you. And the reason he gives you this unique glory is that you might be united to each other in real community. Now, there's some debate on whatever this Jesus gives us his glory for the sake of unity means, right? What in the world does verse 22 mean? The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, it could mean that Jesus showed himself so that you would have this unity among the Christians. That glory could be Jesus' giving of the Spirit, as he promised to do in John 14, verse 17, that the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him or knows him, you know him for he dwells with you and will be with you. Whatever the may, case may be, Jesus is saying, I give something unique to the people of God so that, so that they might be one. They might be united. So the church is obviously something totally new, something totally other, made possible by the gift of Christ. The church becomes this community only made possible by the gift of Christ. Now, the unity between sinners who have differing personalities and opinions, we can take for granted this moment where we come together, but this actually reflects the glory of a triune God who existed in joyful relationship from eternity past. Your relationships with people in the local church, they matter. They matter eternally, so much so that Christ would make it primary in his prayer before he goes to the cross. Now, don't, don't leave that concept in theoretical generalities that's kind of cool to think about. In what sense does our unity reflect Jesus's unity with us? And what would it look like for you as an individual, for me as an individual, what does it look like for us to be perfectly one with other believers in this church according to Christ's prayer for us? What does unity look like when you take it out of just a nice word to say and you actually put flesh and blood on it? Is it just that nobody throws things at business meetings, right? Is it merely that, somebody laughed because that happened. <laughs> Somebody's remembering. <laughs> Not here. <laughs> Is it merely that church people tolerate one another politely? Or is Jesus praying for something more beautiful than that? Practically and legitimately, how did Jesus pursue relationship with us? When you think about it, how did Jesus pursue unity with us? What, was it natural? Did it just happen naturally? How did he pursue it? Let's think about Christmas for just a second, right? I mean, Jesus actually pursues a dark and broken world who was not pursuing him. Jesus came to earth to draw us into relationship with himself, even though we didn't really want anything to do with him. His pursuit of unity with us was not conditioned on whether we were doing our part. Romans 5 says that even while we were still enemies, Christ, what? Died for us. If your pursuits 
of relational unity with others in this church is contingent upon whether they meet your expectations, then you are pursuing relationships in this church, but you're pursuing them like the world. And there's nothing supernatural about it. You could live that kind of relational life as if the gospel were not true at all. Billions of people do it every day. If you believe your relational woes, the reason you're disunited with somebody else in this church or or everyone else in this church, if you believe that it's all their fault, I'm pretty confident that it's not. If you find yourself always offended and never the offender, always the one with unmet expectations but never aware of failing to meet anyone else's expectations, then you're walking the line of worldly, unchristian understanding of community that requires no miraculous glory giving from Christ. Not only did Jesus pursue unity with us, he humbled himself into doing so, didn't he? I mean, that's that's the point of a baby in a manger, is that Christ went to such great lengths to unite people to himself, that he emptied himself of all honor and glory he actually deserved to pursue us. He took the blame and shame on himself when it was not his to carry. How many of us cast the blame to others rather than carrying any ourselves? You see, the essential ingredient to powerful and unshakable unity that Christ prays for is the very humility that he modeled for his followers. More than humility, Jesus sacrificed for us, right? I mean, unity isn't possible in this broken world without people sacrificing for one another. He made the ultimate sacrifice that we might be united with him forever. This is the miracle by which Jesus united himself to you, and it's the miracle by which we live as Christian community. We're a group of people who we have to humble ourselves to one another, and sacrifice for one another. And in doing so, miracles happen. Why would we ever assume that unity among Christian brothers and sisters would require anything other than great sacrifice for the good of the other? Jesus prays that his miracle life, death, resurrection, and teaching will create a community that just puts on display what he came to accomplish in the gospel over and over and over again. If you're here this morning and you want to experience miracle oneness that Jesus prays for in the church, then pursue it as Jesus pursued it with great humility, intentionality, and self-sacrifice. This isn't the only time you see types of things like this show up in the Bible. If you were in our uh, church class in the summer, you'll recognize these verses. We talked about them often in, in Ephesians 3. I think this is one of the verses that just changed my understanding of what the local church even is and why it exists. I think I, for a long time in my life, I understood the local church just to be this mechanism or this organization to generate converts. Like, we, the only reason we existed was to put on the thing on Sunday morning, try to get as many people to come so that they would then hear and believe the gospel. But that's part of what we are, but, but there's more than that. Ephesians 3, Paul says this about the church, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God 
is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And that this was the according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why do we exist as a church? What is it we're doing? By the community in this place, existing in the broken world that we are in, God's wisdom is made known to the cosmos. Like when you forgive someone else and embrace them, though you were once a child of wrath, glory is given to Christ. Angels are amazed. First Peter says angels long to look at what God has done in this place. Paul goes on to offer this prayer in Ephesians 3 verse 20, which we often take and make it apply to whatever we want it to apply to, but he's praying for this type of miracle in the church in Ephesus, and he says in Ephesians 3.20, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Now that's a big buildup, Paul, like there's a big buildup, and you think that the next words out of his mouth are about to be massive, right? That he can do more and abundantly. You think Paul's like, right now, gonna urge the Ephesians to plant a thousand churches, or to erect a giant building, or to put together this massive plan. With this gl- I mean, you just expect visions of grandeur if you're gonna pray that way, Paul. If you're gonna pray, To him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, what's he going to ask for next? Chapter 4, verse 1. This is what he asked for. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, this is the big thing, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness and patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your God, one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. What's Paul eager for? That's far more abundantly than you can ask God to do to make you humble (laughs) and to bear with other Christians in the mission that God has called you on. You want to glorify God this year, embrace an eagerness to join yourself and commit yourself to relationships in the local church with humility, gentleness, patience, and zeal. This is what Paul prays for you. This is what Christ has prayed for you. But there's one more so that, right? There's actually, this actually accomplishes something if our church looks this supernatural. Last prayer request, prayer request number three. Jesus prays for our witness to the world. Jesus prays for our witness to the world. Why is it that he wants us at St. Rose Community Church to be united to each other, to forgive one another, to, to have close relationships with one another? Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are me and I and you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. Verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? Just so we'd have great potlucks, right? which we do, so that 
We have great potlucks so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus is praying to this end, right? That the beauty and the glory of God in the gospel would be made visible and would be made attractive by the community of saints in the church. That you would come to church and you would hear the best news in the world, that God sacrificially loves you and wants relationship with you. And you would hear those words, but then those words that you heard would then match the experience that you're having as you're embraced by people who are not like you and who are wanting relationship with you as God desires relationship with you. There's a lot of talk among our denomination, the Southern Baptists, about declining baptism numbers and not as many people are coming to faith in Jesus. And the perceived answer amongst our denomination is that we need to emphasize evangelism more. We need to get more people to be sharing the gospel. And absolutely, I think we need to get more people sharing the gospel. But perhaps we've recognized the problem, but the problem is actually a symptom of some other problems. Not just because we've failed to proclaim the gospel verbally, but perhaps the problem across the denomination is because so many churches have failed to embody the gospel message in church life. There's nothing supernatural about the place in which you go to hear the gospel. Perhaps what we actually need is more loving one another. By the way, we settle disagreements, forgiving one another, laying down our preferences in pursuit of relational unity to people who are very different than us. Many people are against Christianity, not because they've never heard the gospel, but because they've been to church. And they've heard the gospel, but it hasn't matched up with what they've seen in the people of the gospel. And I'm happy to say, even in making that point, uh, that this has not been my experience in this church. There's moments, there'll be moments in every church, but may it never be said of St. Rose Community Church that our oneness, our unity with one another is very fragile and very worldly. May it be said of us that the gospel unites us with other members of this church beyond just worldly sameness, but that there is a beautiful love for one another made possible only by the love of Christ. This this is Christ's prayer for us, that people would look upon us and they would say, I want to know what they got. I want to know why this happens in a group of people. This is part of the miracle that Christmas was meant to accomplish. It was a community-creating event where impoverished newlyweds, lowly shepherds, kingly wise men, they all can gather around the same Jesus. So let's before we have some takeaways and we close, let me, let me just, let's just read the text one more time. This is Jesus' prayer for us as individuals, as a church. He prays in verse 21 that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I have given to them. 
that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one. So that the world may know that you sent me and I loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. A couple takeaways this morning. Simple. Number one, pursue unity with God. Relational unity with God is yours to enjoy here and now. And if you've never experienced relationship with God or you're not even sure if you have one, I want to encourage you to, to grab us and have a conversation. Uh, some of our pastors will be standing at the door, exit doors as you're leaving, um, saying goodbye and talking. Uh, grab one of them and say, I need to talk about this whole unity with God thing. I don't know where I stand. Number two, covenant to a church. And we believe that the local church is essentially a community of people that's committed to one another. Now that takes shapes and that looks different in different contexts and different times, but without the committedness, without the group of people that are committed to one another, that know one another, that, that serve one another, you don't have a church, you have an event that people show up to and watch. That's not the church. In Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. That is, they gave themselves over to in commitment to one another. That's what church membership is. If you're not formally committed to this church or any church, man, we want to we walk you through what that would look like. We'd love for you to fill out a welcome card and say, I'm interested in that, and we would love to help you in that. Takeaway number three, be eager for Christ-exalting unity. Be the kind of church member who is constantly seeking and pursuing and creating unity around you and be the kind that sniffs out disunity like a hound dog, finds it, and then inserts yourself into the situation with grace and gentleness and humility to try to help everyone act as if the gospel's true. Be the kind of church member who relates to others in a way where Jesus is seen. And lastly, last takeaway, be thankful for miracle unity. Why does Jesus pray for this, right? I suppose that you could say most ultimately that Jesus prays for this for his own glory, for the glory of God, right? Ephesians 3, that it be made known the manifold wisdom of God. But that, that desire for his own glory is not separate or different or distinct or severed from Christ's prayer that happens earlier in John 17, in verse 13. Notice what else Jesus prays in verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. This is why Jesus is saying this, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Why is it that I would urge you to be more deeply united to God and more deeply united to the church? Because it's good. <laughs> I'm not asking you to do something that would steal your joy. I, I'm asking you to do something that Christ says, this is where joy is found. I, this is good. Like when I, I was standing in the back this morning thinking, I never want to do a sabbatical ever again in my life <laughs> because of how good and glorious and grand. I'm standing next to Anne-Marie, I'm hugging my wife, and, and I'm looking, and, and Ray Tell Show is raising his hands in worship. And I watch 
little Nora Jean back there in Nicole's arms, watch Ray and raise her arms in copying him in worship. And Anne-Marie's crying, and I'm fighting the tears, and I'm saying, that is it, right? Like, that's good that, I, that, that my kids have a family that is big and glorious and dear and near, and that my son will not just watch me wrestle with sin and try to worship Christ. My son will watch all the men in this place as they try to model Christ. That's joyful. That's glorious and good. If anybody ever comes to you saying, I love Jesus, but I, but I don't like the church, don't shame them because they don't go to church. Say, you're missing it, man. You're missing the goodness that Christ prayed for in your life. It's a gift. And it comes with difficulties. But any good gift does. Let's pray the same prayers that Christ prayed for us. Father, we just want to glorify your name and thank you, thank you, thank you that you're a God who desires relationship with us. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you're a God who gave us your word so that we might know you. Thank you, thank you, thank you that salvation from Damnation is not the end of the story, but it's the beginning um, of a glorious eternal future where we will feast and laugh and enjoy community with you, with each other for all eternity. And in this season where, where we are sinners, in a broken world. We're broken people in a broken world. And it's hard. And none of what I just said was easy, God. When we pray, Lord, that in this moment that, that we would live and act and respond to one another deeply believing that the next moment is coming, that that, that future glory is ours. God, we just pray. We pray what Jesus prays. That we would be one as the Father and the Son are one. And that the world would know that you sent Christ by our community. We pray this in Jesus' name.